Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. For more information about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, visit us at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening his word. Hey, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm also on the preaching team, and I'm, I'm honored to be with you, uh, grateful to be with you. Uh, Isaiah 55 says that God's word doesn't return void. So I don't know if you just came in here because it's kind of what you do, but just so you know, God has a word for you from his word um, that is specifically for you. And uh, the Holy Spirit helps minister to us and, and hear what we need to hear. So uh, let us give reverent attention to God's word this morning. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 2 and would invite you to go and turn there. If you did not bring a Bible, that's okay. There's some around you underneath the seats. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can have that if, if you would like. We'd love for you to have it. Um, we'll be in, in the text a lot today. So just keep that thing open, Genesis 2. Um, also, just quick announcement. There's a membership class after this. And you're invited if you're, you're not a member to come, whether you registered or not. And if you have kids, you can also come. We will have childcare available. But um, you'll just need to talk to Kayla up front, Kayla Langston, and she can, uh, can help you with that. You don't have to become a member by coming to class. Um, you're just learning more about the church, get your questions answered, that kind of thing. So I uh, would invite you to come and, and learn more about TDC. So we've been in the book of, of Genesis for the last little bit. And the book of Genesis, is it means origin. So it's the book of origins. And in a crazy, chaotic world, which the world has always been crazy and chaotic, I always like to point that out. It's like there's nothing new um, Ecclesiastes even says that there's nothing new under the sun, but with the advent of media, things seem more confusing. And uh, this book is, is one that will, will ground you and, and help you to center yourself upon the word of God. And um, if you are not a Christ follower, I, I would invite you today to, to repent and trust Christ and let this be the word of God for you because it is the word of God. And as we center ourselves under what God says, the unvarnished truth, uh, it begins to, to calm that anxiety in us as we begin to see what is actually true about life in the world. So the, the question in the, in, the, in the video of where are you, it comes from Genesis 3, which we'll get to next week. What happens is God creates man, he creates Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God's good design and his good leadership over them. And they become aware. They, they were previously naked and unashamed, and now they are naked and ashamed, and they're afraid. And so the, the presence of God in their nakedness freaks them out a little bit, and they're hiding from God in the garden, in the perfect place. And so God calls out to them. He says, where are you? And he's not trying to figure out where they're at. It's a penetrating question of their existence. Where are you? It's like, what has happened and so my question for you is, where are you in this crazy, chaotic thing called life? God will answer these questions for us in, in his word, which I'm, I'm so grateful for. And what you need to know before we get into the text, that, that God is a God of intimate relationship. So I like some country music. What's on the radio now is not country music, but what is old is country music, and what is obscure is country music. But there's this motif in country music of like the man upstairs. 
of like, I, I tip my hat to the man upstairs, or, you know, there's an eye in the sky, and, you know, there's a, there's a good guy that someday I'm going to meet. And it's like, just so you know, that's terrible theology. That's just like unaccountable deism. We made that up. It's not the Bible. You will stand before God. There is a God, but God is not an absentee father who's watching you like Santa Claus is coming to town and taking a list of your stuff. But God is about intimate relationship. God is an incarnational God. So Jesus comes and puts on flesh, walks among us, smells our breath, eats meals with us, eventually suffers physically in the flesh for us. And you'll see in a minute, creation, even the way that God designs us and makes us, it is intimate. In the resurrection, when Jesus rises, just as he said he would, he does not come back as an apparition, as a a ghost, and just go, hey, I did it, check me out, and then like disappear. But he comes and hangs out with people. He has breakfast with them on a beach. He's an embodied God. He's a God of intimate relationship. In Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes into believers, God, the Spirit of God, comes into us. If you are a Christ follower, God lives in you. So He is a God of intimate relationship. But what destroys relationships is unfaithfulness. It's wrong loving. It's I know that I'm covenanted to you, that I'm supposed to be faithful to you. I love them or that. And so we have disordered loves. But the good news is that the gospel is that Jesus, our Redeemer, He comes to to renew disordered hearts, to give you a reordered heart, to change your desires, to change your loves, and to put you back into true intimacy with God, which your adultery has wrecked. And so there's good news. And in this text, it's going to be a bit of it. Um, There's three major themes. One is is pleasure. It's pleasure. Enjoying things. And then you'll see work. God talks about work. And then you'll also see marriage is in view. So there's work and pleasure and marriage. And so let's look at this. We're just going to go kind of, you know, a chunk at a time. So again, keep your Bible open in your lap, in your phone, whatever you've, you've got. Starting off in verses four through seven. If you're one of those people that needs the the safety of knowing where we're going, we're going to verse 25. So there you go. Verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God creates from intimacy, just so you know, forever existing in the Trinity, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God is not lacking He is not lonely. He does not need you and me to complete him, but he's fully 
fulfilled within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so from this fullness, he creates. He creates in intimacy. And notice how he creates. Previously, when God makes stuff, he, he says, let there be. Let there be mountains, let there be water, let there be sky, let there be plants. And he's let there be. And, and it is not, not intimate, but, but it is different. With Adam, he breathes his life into his nostrils. This is an intimate act. He does not just say, let there be. This is an, an act of intimacy. And so let me define that word just for fear of saying it over and over again and you not knowing what I mean by that. I'll at least define my terms. The way I would define intimacy is this. Intimacy is present, it is active, and it is knowing. So intimacy is present, sharing the same space with attention focused on one another. So if I'm with you and I'm scrolling my phone, I'm not present. If I'm with you and I'm thinking about a conversation I just had, I'm not present. I struggle with this. God is present. He is sharing the same space and the same time. He is not distracted. He is engaged as he is creating Adam. And, and, and intimacy is active. Love is a verb not a feeling. Love seeks to bless the other. And so there is action there. And love is knowing. And by that, I mean this. Vulnerability is a prerequisite for intimacy. To be exposed and to be loved at the same time, that is intimacy. So God is present, active, and knowing in creation. Moving on to verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, what we do know is, is that God is about the pleasure of Adam. There's rivers flowing. There are precious stones there. And there is pleasure there. God is a God of pleasure. There's a tree there that is pleasant to the sight. It is beautiful. You have a capacity to behold beauty. It is why you, if you enjoy art, you enjoy art. It is why when you look at nature, that you enjoy it. It's pleasurable for you. God pleases you by giving you a glimpse of his glory. That's what beauty is. It is a glimpse of God. It is just, just a small little fraction uh, of seeing him. And then in verse nine, it says that this tree is good for, it's good for food. So imagine the best meal that you've ever had. Steak dinner, Sushi, Italian, I don't know what it is. What, what is. what is food? What is what is a meal? 
Why is it so special? So pleasurable? It's a full sensory experience, isn't it? Smell and taste and touch and sight, different colors, different textures. And so God pleases us through taste buds, through allowing us to taste things. So we have beauty, we have savoring. God is a God of pleasure. Satan is a liar. He promises pleasure. He is the thief of joy. It is a bait and switch. And so what he does is he takes God's good things and says, here, enjoy on my terms or on your terms. But it's a lie. So God is a God of pleasure. It says in verse 9, the tree of life is there. The tree of vitality is there. The tree of flourishing is there. So God is where life is found. And because God is a God of pleasure, He does care about your enjoyment. We reject asceticism as Christians. Asceticism is, is the rejection of pleasure. It is the denial of, of all enjoyment. And so we, we reject that. God is about your pleasure. He is under His terms. And we reject licentiousness, which is just reckless pursuit of pleasure. It's like presumptive pleasure. It's like, I'm going to get pleasure on my own terms based on the things that God has created. I'm just going to use them for my own pursuit. And so what we do is we embrace biblical hedonism, the biblical pursuit of pleasure. You might say, well, you ripped off John Piper because he says Christian hedonism. And I'd say, yes, absolutely, Christian hedonism. What John Piper says is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I'll buy that. Absolutely. So God is about your pleasure, but He is about your pleasure being at His right hand from Him and in Him. But we twist this. We have disordered hearts. We have disordered pleasures. And so Romans 1 tells us that, that these Romans... And this should sound very familiar to you. They're worshiping the, the, the creature, the created things, rather than the creator. They were taking what God had made and, and making it ultimate and just indulging in that while denying and ignoring the God who made it. And this is exactly what we do. And so we misuse God's good gifts. We misuse gifts like sex. And we dive into porneia which is a Greek word for many ways of sexual immorality, fantasy, pornography, adultery, lust. So we pursue those things away from God. And are you surprised? It hurts you. And there is shame there. We misuse good gifts like alcohol. And maybe you drink to get hammered. Or maybe you don't. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm okay. In moderation. Well, God is not against alcohol per se. Are you trying to find rest in a glass of wine? Are you trying to find shalom there? Because that is not good. That is twisting God's good gift if you're trying to find God in the midst of a glass of wine. We misuse food. 
we call gluttony enjoyment. The other day I ate like a whole tray of cinnamon rolls. They were really good. Felt like death afterward. There's a way that seems right to man. It then leads to death. That's kind of how that goes. We misuse rest. We just want a day off. We just want a nap. We just want to veg out, whatever it may be. And, and, and we, we shift into laziness. So when we misuse God's good gifts, we turn pleasure into pain. Maybe this is why your life is a mess. Not that your life will be perfectly buttoned up if you follow Jesus. It won't be. You will suffer. But you can certainly invite misery by taking God's good gifts and, and using them however you want to. It will hurt you. But, but more importantly, you throw God's good gifts in His face. Romans 1 says that we invite the wrath of God. He is not pleased when we do this. Not only is he grieved at our pain, but he is also not okay with us defaming him. So we twist these good things. There's good news in a minute. Verse 15, God hires Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him, to, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So some of y'all think the first profession people say is prostitution. It's not, it's farming. Gardening. God says, get to work. And as I was reading this week in my, my reading plan, Psalm 8 tells us about the dignity and the blessing of getting to work. It says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? in the Son of Man that you care for Him. Yet you've made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned Him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is an act of, of kindness, an act of care for what I have made, care for the beautiful things that I have made. And don't you want to know who's caring for your stuff? So if you VRBO your house and someone's like, you're like, what are you going to use it for? And they're like, well, a fraternity party. And you're like, well, no. God entrusts us to have dominion is an act of intimacy. Trust is a part of intimacy. And then in, in Colossians 3, it says that, that we should, should work heartily as for God and not for men. We should work hard. God is for hard work. You do not mail it in. So whether you work at home or you are a student or you are in business, whatever it may be, you are to be a hard worker if you are in Christ. You are not to mail it in. You are not to cut corners. You are not to do the minimum effective dose to get by or to get promoted or whatever, but you are to do what you do with excellence and to glorify God in it. Work heartily. As for God and not for men. And so I'm, I'm working on not caring what you think of me. 
but I'm not there yet. I want to work for God, though. Work heartily as for God, as for an audience of one. Therefore, what other people think of you should not matter. Your reputation should be irrelevant. Now, if you go around scorched earthing relationships, that's on you. But your goal is to glorify God, not to please people around you. And and you do that, by the way, by serving people around you. I learned recently just this idea. I think it's really, really good. As we work, we should work to serve those who come after us. So if you build a fence, don't build a jank fence. Don't make it be all crooked and yet still okay. Know that someday someone's going to buy your house and someone is going to have to fix that or it's going to keep their animals in or whatever. They should look down the line of that fence and they should see someone cared about this. We should work heartily. We should work as for the Lord, not for ourselves. And so God intends for you to work hard to glorify Him and to serve other people. But we don't do this. And we want to work for ourselves. King David in the Bible, he has a son named Absalom. Being the son of a king, especially a great king like David, it's a good thing. You got the keys to the kingdom. But Absalom is like, no, I think I'll be king. And so he seeks to usurp his father. He seeks to take over. It's like if if a father and son had had a, a family business. Rather, the father had a business that the son gets to work in. He's apprenticing with the father. Maybe it's a, a cobbler shop. They're making shoes, fixing shoes. The father brings up the son. He says, here, son, this is how you work. This is what you do. And all the, all the while, he's providing food and clothing for this this boy, he's, he's helping him. This is our customer. This is how we talk to people. This is how you fix the sole of a shoe. And then one day that son grows up and goes, you know what? I'm going to start my own shop. And so next door to his father with a bigger sign and a brighter sign, the son starts a store, takes all the, the customers and brings them over, uses everything the father had taught him to compete with him. That's exactly what we do when we work for ourselves, for our own glory. There's a a quick little detour here in verses 16 and 17, talking about the commands of God. So, So the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Eden is not anarchy. There is hierarchy. There is authority. So God, because he knows best, he tells us what to do. He tells Adam what to do. He does not let Adam just go figure it out. This is a very intimate act of of giving him commands. It's like when, when my kids are acting a fool and I correct them and they're not looking at me, Sometimes I will stop and I will say, hey, look at me. Look at me in your eyes. And then they'll look at me and I'll say, okay, knock that off or do this or do that. I want them to see me. I want them to see my face, which is I love you and there's authority here. 
God is commanding them. Notice in verse 16, God is not just saying like, like micromanaging Adam and saying, just stay in this little plot, but he's saying, you got every tree. Go run, go have fun, have freedom, enjoy what I have made. I've made it for you. Go. And then in verse 17, he says, but don't eat of that one tree. You'll die. Don't eat of it. And he's not being a killjoy. He's keeping Adam from being killed. God's commands are good. They are for your protection and your guidance. And yet we cast off restraint. We don't like this. There's this meme going around that says, become ungovernable. I think it's a political statement. I'm not even quite sure. We are to be eagerly governable by God. We are to eagerly come before him and, and say, teach me and direct me and tell me exactly what to do because you know best and you love me. We begin to, to see marriage in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Adam has naming rights. This is delegated authority. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God says, okay. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So notice, if you turn in your Bible in Genesis 3, when things go wrong, they become naked and ashamed. But not now. They're naked and unashamed. In verse 18, it says that it's, it's not good that, that, that man should be alone. A helper's needed. And some of you ladies might go, well, that sounds inferior. That sounds like Batman to Robin, Robin to Batman, or, or like a, a caddy for a golfer, or an assistant coach, or, or something like that. But, but, but notice a couple of things. One, Adam is lacking in something. There are gifts and talents and abilities and hard wiring that women have that men desperately need. Amen? And so God has, has this in mind that this helper is needed. And so first of all, there are things, ladies, that you can do that men can never do. Not just having kids. More than that. But also, the Holy Spirit is called the helper in the Bible. God himself is called the helper in the Bible. 
So there is dignity and there is value and there is importance. And so in verse 18, this, this helper fit for him is a helper corresponding to him. In verses 21 and 22, the divine surgery, just notice there's, a not, there's not another let there be. Just as God doesn't say, let there be man, he also doesn't say, let there be woman, but he, he, he breathes life into Adam. Adam becomes a living creature. He takes a rib from Adam and he creates Eve. An intimate creation. And then in verse 22, the first father presents the first bride to the first groom. What an intimate act it is for a father to present his daughter to someone. He walks her down the aisle and, and Adam rejoices. This is the first poem that we see. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is rejoicing over her. And then in verse 24, there's the union. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. few things here about marriage. It's under God. God is officiating this ceremony. God is determining the rules of engagement. It is under God. So we do not self-determine the rules of marriage. God does. It's under God. You are to leave your parents. Some of y'all need to hear that. Some of your parents are in your ear and they're in your marriage. We are to still honor our parents, friends, even if they are dishonorable. You are to honor them, but you are to prioritize your spouse, your husband, your wife. That is your primary relationship. And that is where the priority lies. And so you, you leave them physically, also emotionally, and you love them and you honor them and you spend time with them, but your priority is your spouse. And you become one flesh. This is intimacy. This is sexual intimacy, which is present, active, and knowing. It is an act of vulnerability. It is an act of love. It is an act of seeking to serve the other. And so, yes, it's for procreation, but it's also for the relationship. And so as one flesh, yes, we, we consummate the marriage, but there's also other implications that we could talk about. It's financial. Don't have two bank accounts. Don't get a prenup. It's practical. Have one bed. Be together. Be one flesh. But most of all, be spiritually one flesh. Love Jesus together. If your marriage is of Christ, that is the best thing that you can do for your marriage is to love Jesus together as one flesh. So the outcome of this is a vulnerable, safe, intimate relationship. They are fully exposed and fully loved. And that is what true love is. So, why God creates marriage. One, it's, it is for Adam. But Ephesians 5, which will be on the screen, we'll read this together. It also says it's, it's for his glory. Look at, look at what Paul is quoting to the Ephesians. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound. It is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is not a path to self-fulfillment. It is not a path to completion. It is a path to God glorification. And so a husband dying for his wife, sacrificing for his wife, is a picture of Christ dying for his beloved, the church. The church loving Christ and seeking to serve Christ and honoring Christ, that is a picture of the wife in return loving her husband. As we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in the marriage, we glorify God. We show the world just a little picture of what loving sacrifice might be like. It is a demonstrating display. But we don't treat marriage like this. And so we minimize it. And so we, no no one ever says when they get married, like, I'm going to be divorced someday. No one gets up one day and says, this is the day that my marriage falls apart. But we, we neglect the marriage. When you neglect a garden, weeds grow up and choke it out, and eventually the garden is is dead. And so divorce, some of you know this, is not separation, it's devastation. You're ripping two that have become one together. You're ripping flesh apart. Some of you know exactly what this feels like. So I, I just, as I was studying this, I just felt called to just, just say to you husbands, the father has walked his daughter down the aisle to you. And you are to care for her. And you are to cherish her and respect her and to sacrifice for her. You are not to assume that she will be there. You are not to assume her affection but you're to die for her and to seek to serve her in every way, that she would be blessed, that she would be cared for, that she would flourish and be cultivated. Know the honor and the dignity of what God has given you with the wife. It is no small thing. So marriage can become, instead of a place of of growth and God glorification and even safety, marriage becomes a place of of, of stress and strife when we choose to to go our own way, to, to have disordered hearts in our marriage. But the good news, that's all the bad news. Some of it's great news about God's good design, but the bad news is how we abuse his good design. The good news is that we have a redeemer. that Jesus has come to to reorder disordered hearts. You see, your heart is not disordered by accident. It's on purpose. They're intentionally disordered. They're intentionally off, and that is sin. And so we take the good gifts of God, pleasure and work and marriage, and we say, not thy will be done. We say, my will be done. We don't come under God's good command. And so this is believers and unbelievers. So if you're here and you're like, well, good, I'm a, I'm a Christian. So I'm, I'm not, you're not talking to me. I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me because we're all partially unbelievers until the day that we die and our hearts are errant until they are fully restored. 
So the answer to this disordered heart problem is this, repent. You're like, seriously, that's your solution? Yes, repent. Run from your disordered pleasures, your disordered work, your disordered marriage. Run from your self-governance and run to Christ for the first time and all the time. Some of you need to be justified for the first time and to come before the Lord and say, I repent and be saved. And some of you need to repent again and again and again and turn from your sin to God. You are already saved if that is you, but you are being sanctified. You are being made more like Christ. Repentance is a banquet of grace. And so repent, because through Christ you can be forgiven for your rebellion. Fully. Through Christ you can be brought into intimate relationship with God again. Ephesians 2, 13, this will be on the screen. says, those that, that are in Christ who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus restored to intimacy with God, restored to fellowship with God. It took his death that you could have life in God. So Jesus brings you back through his work. Through Christ, your disordered loves can be transformed with a new heart, with new affections, with new motivations. You can begin to, to live as God designed you can pursue pleasure in God and by his standards. That, that way, you actually would enjoy pleasure without shame. You can work with a purpose. Some of you are kicking rocks. You're like, this is a stupid job. I don't even know what I'm doing. You have a purpose. In Christ, you can have a great purpose and you can work for his glory to bless others. And you can work from grace, not to earn it. Through Christ, you can have a marriage that is actually beautiful. I did not say actually easy. Not seeking to be completed by the other, but being completed by Christ and therefore seeking to serve the other and to glorify God. And guess what happens there too? You are shaped in your marriage. In the furnace of marriage, of struggling and suffering and fighting and forgiving and serving, and blessing, on and on, you are being shaped and refined. But most of all, through Christ, you can be naked and unashamed before God. You can stand before Him, the one who knows your heart. He knows the darkness in you. He knows you top to bottom, and you can stand before him and he can say, where are you? And you can say, here I am. Jesus, by your blood, here I am. You can be fully exposed and fully loved by God for who you are because of Christ, which is true love. So turn to him. Run from your disordered pleasures, your disordered heart, and run to the one 
who is the God of pleasure, the God of purpose, and the God of redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our disordered loves, our, our spiritual, maybe for some physical, adultery, unfaithfulness to you, your commands. We take your good gifts and we twist them we worship them. We invite pain upon ourselves. Some of us are, are, are in pain right now because of this. But you are a God of pleasure. You are a God of kindness and of blessing. Under your good terms. And the most pleasing of all is to be in intimate fellowship with you in a present, active, and knowing relationship where we know that we are fully seen and yet fully loved. That the parts of us that we're scared of exposing are covered by Christ, forgiven and covered and cleansed. And so we can stand before you only by his blood. Jesus, thank you for bringing us to the point of reconciliation by your cross. You suffered separation that we could be brought in and adopted sons and daughters. Lord, those in this room who have not yet repented for the first time, run from their sin to you for salvation. Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of their hearts this morning? And for those who are Christ followers, may we repent and run to you for our disordered loves. Transform us to be more like you, Jesus. And Lord, as we get to sing now, Holy Spirit, would we just get a, a little taste of that intimacy, of that fellowship that Jesus has purchased for us. In his name we pray. Amen.